morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The 4th of July is drawing near, the day we celebrate our nation's independence. Our liberties and traditions are rooted in history, as are some enduring monuments that mark our landscape. Lee Cowan will report our cover story. They are among some of the oldest living things on the planet, and yet only a precious few old-growth redwoods remain. I see probably two or three that look pretty good. So what are scientists doing with the seeds from those ancient trees, and why? Is that possible to bring a place like this back? Well, it'll take a while. (laughs) You know, the tree's a 1,000 years old, Uh, but you have to begin someday. The shift from redwood conservation to restoration, ahead on Sunday morning. We have a summer song tailor-made for Independence Day, a visit with singer John Mellencamp. Let's just say it was a wild ride. Spend some time with John Mellencamp. Can you still breathe? Because I'm holding on pretty tight. (laughs) And you take your life in your hands. (laughs) I know, I should have worn a helmet. Fasten your seatbelts. The 4th of July is all about our inalienable right to choose our political leaders. This morning, Aaron Moriarty takes a look at one high-profile candidate in our empire state. Cynthia Nixon made a name for herself as part of a famous foursome on Sex and the City. But these days, she's looking for a starring role on a different stage. I'm Cynthia Nixon, and I'm running for governor of New York State. How are you going to pull this miracle off? You don't have the money. You don't have the polls right now. How? It is totally a David and Goliath thing. That's absolutely true. Why Cynthia Nixon has taken on her toughest role yet, ahead on Sunday morning. Plenty of us will be seeing red over the coming holiday. Our Luke Burbank among them. In these divided times, there's still at least one thing Americans seem to agree on. If you ask most Americans what condiment do they prefer, and virtually everybody will say ketchup. Yes, ketchup. We put it on everything. But how does it get in all those bottles? From field to French fry. Everything you wanted to know about ketchup. Later on Sunday morning. We'll have those stories and more just ahead. America's independence and liberties are rooted in a history 242 years old. America's most neck-craning trees are rooted in a history much older than that. Our cover story is reported by Lee Cowan. Deep in one of California's few remaining old-growth forests sat an oddity, popular with tourists since the 1880s. A giant sequoia, so giant, a tunnel was carved in its trunk. Last year, that tree toppled over in a storm. It was estimated to be around 1,000 years old. It and other trees like it in the redwood family are a testament to how much we are fascinated by these ancient evergreens but it's also a reminder of just how much we've abused them. 
looked like the redwoods were a limitless resource that we could never possibly cut all of them down. And we needed those for houses and lumber camps and mine shaft tunnel shore up poles or everything. It seemed like a limitless resource. Alex Taboni is a ranger at the very first state park in California, Big Basin Redwoods State Park, about 65 miles south of San Francisco. It's been a park since 1902, ever since a photographer named Andrew P. Hill led the first-of-its-kind conservation charge to protect giants like this one, what's now called the father of the forest tree. It was probably only going to be another six months to a year before all of these old-growth trees that we're standing in right now would have been gone. It was that close. That close. While those trees were saved, other old-growth groves were not so lucky. In a 1965 CBS News documentary, our own Charles Corral reported on the rush to turn some of the last remaining redwood forest either into lumber or to clear them out of the way to make room for a highway. A hundred years ago, the great original redwood forest covered two million acres along the California coast. But more than two-thirds of the virgin redwood trees are gone. Their loss was lamented even then. The more you can preserve of this, the better. I, I don't think that the world needs any more freeways. I think you, pretty soon you're just going to end up with a bunch of roads with no place to go on them. The final tally, 95% of California's original redwood forest was logged, wiped clean, leaving only giant stumps as reminders of what had stood here for so long. And it's not as if the threat is entirely over. Even today, only about a quarter of the coast redwood habitat is protected from commercial logging and development. That said, those that remain stand as cathedrals of nature. Some have been here long before Columbus landed in the Americas and tower some 30 stories tall. Yes, that's a grown person being dwarfed by that massive trunk. What's it like when you're here and you see someone that's never been in a redwood forest before to come in and see them? <laughs> that's the best. That is the best. What do they say? Usually it's something along the lines of, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Hodder is president and CEO of the nonprofit Save the Redwoods League. Its founders started buying up forest land 100 years ago, but much of it is younger forests that aren't maturing as big or as fast as some conservationists would like to see. And these, what do you think, 50, 60 years old? So they're just babies, really. These are just babies. These are just babies. Wow. We're working with redwood forests that have been clear cut multiple times and are growing back with such a density of stems that they're crowding each other out. It becomes a thicket of spindly trees that don't get enough sunlight, that don't get enough water. There's just too much competition. There's too much competition. So there's a subtle shift underway from forest conservation to forest restoration, which includes one idea that may have you scratching your heads, logging. Over the next five years, Save the Redwoods League will be working to thin over 10,000 acres of smaller trees in order to give the remaining redwoods more space, more nutrients, and more light in order to grow faster. Just like in a garden, where you prune to accelerate the growth of the dominant plants, you need to thin. 
But figuring out which of these precious trees stay and which ones go is no easy decision. We treat all the trees like they're the same, but they're really, really not. Save the Redwoods League scientist Emily Burns, along with University of California Davis professor David Neal, are trying to unlock the genetic secrets of some of the oldest living things on the planet. So as old as they are and as iconic as they are, we don't really know that much about them, right? They're the strong, silent type. <laughs> and so we have to use science to help decode what's going on with these trees. Last year, in two labs, one at UC Davis, the other at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, they began the complex task of mapping the redwood genome to uncover nature's blueprint that is as unique to every tree as our own genetic makeup is to us. You have to have a parts list to understand whether anything is the same or different than it was before. The parts list for Redwood did not exist. It's a daunting task, though. Yeah, it, we won't be able to do it overnight. You know, <laughs> it'll take a few years, but it's achievable. We as humans have three billion pairs of DNA. Pretty complicated. But the Coast Redwood has some 30 billion base pairs. But I thought we were the most complex organisms on Earth. Well, no, that you should rethink that. <laughs> I see probably two or three that look pretty good. It all starts with the redwoods cones and the seeds embedded in them, high up in the canopy. Yep, someone has to make their way all the way up there and pluck them off by hand. So you're climbing two, three hundred feet in the air? Not me, um, <laughs> but I would like to. It's from the seeds where the DNA is extracted one scalpel cut at a time. There it goes. Millions of little pieces of DNA, the chemical building blocks of life, are all sequenced and then fed into a powerful computer. Basically, you take a, you know, a puzzle and throw it on the floor, and now you have to put it back together. The $2.6 million project has been funded by mostly private donations. When it's done, scientists will have mapped enough of the genome in enough trees to help identify the kinds that are most resilient and likely to live a nice long life. Within 100 years, we absolutely can set these forests on a healthy trajectory where they have many of the characteristics we're looking for in old growth. Call it a nurturing nudge from science, all to save what John Steinbeck once called ambassadors from another time. When so much of the conversation today is about what we've lost, the, the damming of the world's waterways, the receding glaciers, we have in the redwood forest a sense of hope. And we can truly leave the world better than we found it. This is your United States Post Office Department introducing our new five-digit zip code program. Well, hello, my friend. How do you do? They hope you have a moment. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. July 1st, 1963. It concerns our postal system. 55 years ago today, a red letter day for the U.S. Post Office. What is the zip code? A postal quirk? What does it do? How does it work? It was day one of its zoning improvement plan, ZIP for short. To speed mail delivery, the post office gave each of its locations a unique five-digit number. ZIP code. Five trailblazing numbers like this one. As outlined by Postmaster General J. Edward Day in exhaustive geographical detail. The first one of the five numbers will 
indicate a section of the country, such as all of the western states. The next two numbers out of the five will designate either a particular state or a part of a state. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why do postal clerks get indigestion? Assigning zip codes was one thing. Getting people to use them was another. Carefully zip coded. Which was where a massive PR campaign came in. Well, meet a fella called Mr. Zip. What he can do for you will really make you flip. A cartoon mail carrier. Mr. Zip was created to give the new system a human face. Well, sort of. Zip codes were celebrated in song and dance. Hi, this is Ethel Merman to tell you about the post office department's zip code. Perhaps most convincingly of all, by none other than Ethel Merman. Welcome the zip code, learn it today. Send your mail out the five-digit way. As if the five digits weren't enough to remember, in 1983, the Postal Service introduced zip plus four, featuring additional digits that can pinpoint specific neighborhoods, buildings, even postal boxes. Learn it today, send your mail out. Thanks to zip codes, no matter where we live or work, the Postal Service can always claim to have your number. Should have the zip And what about you, Miranda? Seeing anyone special? Actually, no, but I am seeing a whole bunch of unspecial guys. <laughs> Actress Cynthia Nixon won a fair amount of fame for her role as Miranda on the TV series Sex and the City. But does that mean she can win the Democratic nomination for governor of New York? Here's Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours. Cynthia Nixon's face is instantly recognizable. And is that a bad thing? Thanks to that hit TV show, Sex and the City, and 40 years of appearing on stage and screen. But that may not help her win the role of a lifetime. I'm Cynthia Nixon, and I'm running for governor of New York State. Yes, the woman who once played Miranda Hobbs, the hard-driven lawyer, has now joined the ranks of the more than three dozen women across the country who are running for their state's highest office. Because what are we waiting around for? What are we waiting around for? There's no cavalry coming. We, we have to be the cavalry ourselves. We have to, we have to lead the charge. Hi, how are you? I'm a big fan. Thank you. It's a surprising change of career for a woman who didn't need one. 52-year-old Cynthia Nixon has won two Emmys, a Grammy, and two Tonys, one just last year for Best Featured Actress in the Broadway revival of The Little Foxes. She's been acting since she was nine, beginning with the game show To Tell the Truth, where her mother worked. At 12, she was cast in the feature film Little Darlings. What is it? that you liked about acting. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of literature, but it's a, it's a piece of literature made flesh. But it's also a chance to try on 
different personalities and, and see different people's lives. And for me, particularly when I was an adolescent, it was a way to get all my powerful feelings out. It also helped pay the bills. She was raised by her single mother in Manhattan after her parents' marriage broke up. My dad had some real troubles, um, and, and our home could really be a scary place sometimes. Was he abusive to your mom? He was um, not physical, but a um, lot, of, lot of screaming and a lot of crying and a lot of, a lot of upset. So when Nixon was six, her mother walked out, taking her daughter with her. For me, all the times in my life that I found the strength and courage to stand up, including now, um, are for what she showed me that, that, that I could do. With her mother's encouragement, right. Nixon's career took off. My name is Laurel, sir. I'm a maidservant. Then, in 1998... By the time you reach your mid-30s, you think, why should I settle? Along came Sex in the City, and 32-year-old Cynthia Nixon became a star. Maybe I should just be honest and tell him what I'm really feeling, which is, what if somebody better comes along? you got to put a better spin on it than that. We certainly could, could never have imagined the success and the popularity and the, the longevity, but I think it really was ahead of its time, and I think Miranda in particular was so ahead of her time. You said that when you first took on the part of Miranda Hobbs, even you didn't really connect to her. I loved Miranda. I loved Miranda from the get-go. But, uh, but certainly she was far more confrontational than I was. She was far more of a kind of a gladiator. But I found that by the end of the show that I had definitely become more like her. This is a time to stick our necks out, to remember where we came from. This is a time to be visible. This is a time to fight. It all seems to have given her the drive to run for New York governor taking on another Democrat, Andrew Cuomo, the two-term incumbent in the primary. In the most recent poll, however, he's more than 30 points ahead of her. Everybody assumes that the, that the bigger, more establishment, better-funded candidate is, is the person who's got it in the bag. I wouldn't write me off so quickly. This race, as with so many of the races around the country, I think are really a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. We need a Democratic Party that is giving people something to vote for, not just something to vote against. You can't just say, vote for me because I'm not Donald Trump. Please welcome Cynthia Nixon. Nixon's celebrity does get her more attention than a lot of other first-time candidates, but it hasn't saved her from tough questions. People, no offense, but you do not have uh, uh, experience in public office, should governor of New York be the first job you have? While Nixon has worked for years as a public school activist, she has never held public office. If you really want to make change, shouldn't you start on a more accessible office? Why governor? That's because the governor is what's wrong with New York State. But how are you going to pull this miracle off? You don't have the money. You don't have the polls right now. How? It is totally a David and Goliath thing. That's absolutely true. But we've got, we've got three months. And if you look how far we've come in the, in the three months that since, since I've started running, we just need to keep talking about the issues. If Nixon could pull off an upset, she would not only become the first female, but also the first gay governor of New York State. 
She's married to Christine Marinoni, a woman she met when she first became involved with public education advocacy. You had never dated women, had you? No. No, I never had. When did you realize that you were falling for Christine? Well, I had such admiration for her from the very beginning. But, you know, there was a lot going on in my life. I was doing Sex in the City. Um, I was raising my family. And uh, it wasn't really until my, my, we weren't married, but my relationship with my children's father broke up and I was at such a low point um, that she was really, she was there for me in an incredible way. The two have a young son, Nixon's third child, and they share a home filled with reminders of the world she left behind. It's not hard to put this behind you. This has been your life. You it's know, look at Glenda Jackson. I mean, she served in Parliament for, what is it, 23 years? Look, she's back on Broadway, just one of Best Actress Tony. People can have a lot of careers in their life. This time around, Cynthia Nixon has chosen to write her own script for a role she says she's ready to play. Women have as much right to lead as anybody, and our voices have been too few and far between. And it's why I'm so inspired by all the women who are running for office for the first time. It's one of the things that really clinched my decision to run, too. Before there were podcasts, there was television. Remember? See what's new under the sun every Sunday morning. Ketchup lovers will be seeing red at many a 4th of July picnic or barbecue. Our Luke Burbank can hardly wait. Ketchup is just one of those American things. So common, so typical, so ubiquitous, that most of us never give it a second thought. It has everything that you could want. It's, it's sweet and sour. It's got vinegar in it. It's got uh, sugar in it. Andrew Smith is a food historian who says ketchup actually started out in what is now considered Indonesia as a sort of fish sauce called ketsiap. British colonists brought it home, and then in the 19th century, it landed here, where there was an overabundance of tomatoes. If you had a ton of tomatoes in September or October, you had to do something with them, and one of the things that you could do with them is make ketchup. It took off immediately due to its ability to add flavor to things. And we mean everything. During the Depression, people would go into uh, small diners and they would order a glass of water and then they would pick up the ketchup and they would add the ketchup and they would have tomato juice at the end. It's not bad. Put a little vodka in there, a couple of olives. And the man maybe most responsible for ketchup's spread was a young German-American businessman in Pittsburgh named Henry J. Hines. He started out selling horseradish with limited success, but it was his tomato ketchup that really took off. So we're out in a tomato field in the middle of California. This is a tomato field that contains 4707, our workhorse Heinz uh, variety. Troy Shannon works for Heinz. This tomato is exactly right for ketchup. It's much thicker uh, and less juicy than a normal tomato that you buy in a grocery store. The 4707 has actually been patented by Heinz, the result of years of research and development. And after those 4707s are picked, they become the responsibility of Hector Osorno, 
tomato ketchup master. Really, that's his title. And he knows the secret recipe. Have they told you what's in the spices? Yes. So they trust you with that information? Yes. But you can't tell me? No. Osorno is one of only seven ketchup masters at Heinz. And sometimes what we do is just check. Charged with maintaining the taste, color, and consistency of all 650 million bottles sold each year. Oh, wow. Can you try it? Yeah. I'm gonna just do this. Oh, okay. It's good. Yes. But one place his ketchup mastery won't be necessary, Chicago. At least not when it comes to hot dogs. No ketchup, no ketchup. Anything else but no ketchup. It's like sacrilegious. Fresh chopped onions. Step behind the counter at Portillo's. A kosher dill spiller. And you'll see that Chicago-style hot dogs aren't hurting for flavor. Is there a strategy to eating a Chicago-style you know, dog? Some folks take the pickle off and eat the pickle on the side. Some folks just grab it and dig right in and eat it as it is. And don't even think about asking for ketchup across town at the legendarily saucy Wiener's Circle. Can I have ketchup on there? Heck you no, know, we don't think that's against the rules of a Wiener's Circle. We don't do ketchup on hot dogs, okay? Not in Chicago either. No. And it turns out she wasn't kidding. Thank you. Thank you. Now go sit down and have it. Okay. Eat it up. No ketchup, man. Well, I had to try. I guess the good news is that just means more ketchup for the rest of us. Steve Hartman now with the story of a couple getting a second chance at love. Which pictures do we have here? Anything current? Jeff and Angela are in that getting to know you stage of their relationship. But unlike most couples going through this discovery period, oh, remember that? Jeff and Angela Hartung of Tulsa, Oklahoma. What did we do when we were there? Are married and have been for the past 17 years. I don't remember. So much was lost after the accident. About five years ago, Angela got hit by a car while crossing this intersection in New York City. She suffered a traumatic brain injury and was in a coma for about a month. When she woke up, she was trapped in the past. I don't remember anything at all. I asked for my two children. I thought they were like two and eight years old. They were 17 and 23 years old. Two, you're sweet. Angela had no memory of at least the last 15 years of her life. She thought she was still married to her first husband, who died long ago, and had no recollection whatsoever of her second wedding to Jeff, or anything about Jeff, which left him with a question that had no easy answer. How to go from stranger back to spouse? He started by lining virtually every inch of their home with pictures, reminders of happier days. Then he began courting his wife. What about that one up there? And most importantly, he never left her side. I love how you've helped me. And eventually it worked, which called for a celebration, one Angela would never forget. We're gathered here today as witnesses for Jeff and Angela as they renew their vows of holy matrimony. 
Last month, surrounded by friends and family in New York's Central Park, Jeff and Angela started the next chapter of their storybook tale. Today, I choose you, Angela. Again. Again. Of course, those painful years would have broken a lot of marriages. But Jeff believes the accident did quite the opposite for his. I honestly believe that this happened for a reason. You feel like it's a blessing that this happened, not the injuries, mm. but the fact that you had to prove yourself all over again? I do, to be able to do over. How many times have we said, oh, I wish I could go back and do something over again? I've gotten to do that. And that's the beauty of having a second chance at finding your one true love. Coming soon, Mobituaries, a podcast on matters of death and life from Mo Rocca. ROCK in the USA was a big hit for John Mellencamp back in 1986. He was honored at the Songwriters Hall of Fame Awards in New York earlier this month. And he was a most gracious host when I came to visit him on his home turf. I was born in a small town And I can breathe in a small town John Mellencamp was born in a small town. Seymour, Indiana. And he still lives outside a small town. Keep your feet on the pegs. Where it crossed my mind, I could die in one. Hold on to you. That's all you got. I am not letting go. <laughs> I know. I should have worn a helmet. John Mellencamp has come a long way. Seymour's about 50 miles from here. Yeah. His 86-acre estate borders Lake Monroe near Bloomington. What is it about you in Indiana? I have to come here. I just feel at home. I mean, I could be away for a long time and come back here and kind of decompress and then boom. It's ironic. He extols the bucolic life but lives a fast one. <laughs> Tell him how fast you just went. Okay, how, well, I think 85 is what you claimed. 85. <laughs> oh, Lordy. <laughs> but I didn't come home to Indiana to ride. I came to talk. Where would you rather be than sitting here being interviewed? Well, cards on the table. Mm -hmm. I don't really like being interviewed. Mm. I have talked about myself for 40 years and I'm just not that interesting. Not interesting? Married in high school and a father at 19, Mellencamp wasted no time. At 21, he went to New York to study art or to sign a record deal. It turned out that the New York Art Student League wanted money, but the record company wanted to give me money. <laughs> Let me see. I ended up getting a record deal like that. I interviewed the head of a record company, and he said within minutes, everybody knows that somebody who has walked in the door has something. But the most humility, I say that's what happened to me. They didn't even listen to the demo tape. 
little ditty about Jack and Diane. But we're still listening to Mellencamp classics like Jack and Diane. Oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone to walk on. I don't really know how a 25-year-old guy would know that life would go on long after the thrill of living is gone. Uh, but I wrote those words, and for me it was very helpful because, I don't know about you, but I want to do something every day. I want to learn something every day. I want to make something every day. If I go for a day and don't make anything, I feel guilty about it. I love every part of that statement. What do you think is driving you? I wrote in a song, life is short even in its longest days. He's been smoking, by the way, most of his life, since he was 10. Life is short, even in its longest days. He's also a serious and prolific painter. His portraits have been shown at museums. Baby menu. But the music often interrupts the brushwork. And there's a song on the new record called Easy Targets. Easy Targets. A country's broken up. And I wrote that song in, I don't know, five minutes. I couldn't even keep up with it. So songwriting has become like a real uh, surprise to me and really uh, exciting a at my age. It's more exciting now than it ever was. His latest and 23rd album is called Sad Clowns and Hillbillies. The critics took notice. Do you read them? Nope. I'm finding this out from you. You've been really, really good. I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. Uh, if, you, if you care about the good ones, then you gotta care about the bad ones. His music has changed over the years. And so has his name. From the 1970s through the 80s, he was John Cougar. His first manager thought it would sell more records. For a while, he went by John Cougar Mellencamp. But by the early 90s, the Cougar was gone. At times overtly political, Mellencamp's songs about freedom, struggling farmers, the working man, led fans to make assumptions. But quite honestly, that's one of my biggest disappointments. You would think with all the goddamn people in the world that somebody would have taken the time to sat down and listen to my lyrics to my song one time. Pink Houses, for instance, is not a red, white, and blue anthem. Your fans are probably way, way, way on the spectrum to the right of you. Oh, I've been booed. When the Iraq war started, I was so against that. $51 billion more to continue his war in Iraq. If John Mellencamp sounds like one self-assured son of a gun, she is the reason why. Here's the trick. If you want a kid that has confidence, my grandmother told me 
every day of my life. Buddy, don't forget, you're the handsomest, luckiest, talented boy in the world. The flip side of that is it's really hard for girlfriends to compete with that. <laughs> it's an acknowledged fact that relationships have been a struggle. What's the greatest lesson you've learned from the women in your life? Too many to name. Apparently women just don't like me very much. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say about that. He's been linked in recent years to perennial cover girl Christy Brinkley and actress Meg Ryan. And before them, three wives. He has five children and nine grandkids. You're looking for another cigarette, I know. Yeah. Can we talk about that? What huh? cigarettes? You have a voice to protect, don't you? Or is it Are just you kidding me? Have you, have you ever heard my voice yeah. lately? It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it Are you is. kidding me? I sound like a black guy singing now. <laughs> what? I mean, that's what I wanted. I wanted to sound like, you know, uh, Louis Armstrong. But I didn't. I sounded like a white guy. And now I got it. These are my babies. Come on. He says he doesn't worry so much about cigarettes and his health. He's got a strange theory. Rightfully or wrongfully, I believe that it's the combination of cigarettes and alcohol that get people, the two of them combined. And he hasn't had a drink, he says, since college. It's probably a wacky idea, but it comforts me. Now that I've said that, Two weeks from now, you're going to read, Mellencamp dies of heart attack. <laughs> He's already had a heart attack at 42. And now, at 66, he does think about mortality. I can see the finish line from here. I only have so many summers left, and I intend not to waste them being old. Tis the season for movies. Our critic, David Edelstein, has some recommendations. Here's the problem facing a critic telling you what to see around July 4th. You have Incredibles 2, Jurassic World whatever, and some Marvel insect superhero nonsense. They're on 18 different screens at the multiplex in IMAX, 3D, 2D, Smell-O-Vision. The great smaller films are harder to find because there's this vast gulf, this distribution chasm between movies budgeted at a zillion dollars and everything else. So I'll split the difference. First, the big. In the event you haven't seen Incredibles 2, go. Not because it's a terrific animated movie, but because it's proof that someone, not anyone, director Brad Bird can make a superhero picture that's fleet and shapely with action sequences that are stylish rather than bloated and noisy. Done properly, parenting is a heroic act. <laughs> Done properly. <laughs> that said, Marvel, however much it gobbles up screens, has its virtues. Ant-Man and the Wasp, which opens Friday, is an agreeable, family-friendly slapstick comedy over busy with good sight gags in which the Ant-Man lost the teeny, then huge, then teeny again, so you laugh at every crazy lurch and scale. On the other hand, Jurassic Park 
fallen kingdom proves the kingdom hasn't fallen far enough. The first time a dino chases a little girl around a house is exciting, the second less so, and by the third, the movie's just chasing its own dumb tail. Getting into weirder territory. Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. If you're one of those nutty masochists who lives to be emotionally ripped to shreds by horror movies, the love of your life might be hereditary. With Toni Collette in a performance almost too raw as a woman who can't tell if demons are infesting her family or if it's just, you know, dysfunctional family business as usual. Or both. I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. Spoiler, it's both. I've decided to keep a journal. Almost as masochistic and devastating is Paul Schrader's brilliant First Reformed, in which Ethan Hawke plays an alcoholic pastor torn apart by the church's failure to act in the face of environmental catastrophe. I know that nothing can change, and I know there is no hope. Look for two documentaries, one enraging, the other healing. Three Identical Strangers centers on triplets adopted by three different families who meet by chance and bond as if they'd known one another all their lives. That's when things kinda got funky. But what begins as a goofy, parent-trap-like tale in which nature trumps nurture drifts into more horrific, tragic territory, a diabolical study that will confirm your worst fears about science and the government. Mr. Rogers, yeah. I like you. I like you, my dear. For your best hopes, see Won't You Be My Neighbor and celebrate Fred Rogers, who loved you unconditionally. It's a wonderful breather from reality, from which you come back more dismayed than ever by the hate that runs the world. And mark down on your calendar July 13th. Hey guys, uh, it's Kayla back with another video. Opening day of comedian Bo Burnham's debut feature, Eighth Grade, starring an amazing girl named Elsie Fisher. By the way, I like your shirt a lot. It's like so cool. What? If there's a more wrenching, more hauntingly accurate portrait of growing up now, well, I'm not sure I could take it. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning.